Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. My name is Isabella Tabarovsky, and I'm a senior associate at the Canon Institute. We hope that you are taking care, staying safe at this time, and that you had a little bit of a chance to perhaps disconnect, perhaps to to relax a little bit uh, in the run-up to our to the fall. And we welcome you to the first of our virtual events this fall. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you to uh, stay up to date with upcoming events and publications on our website, our blogs, The Russia File and Focus Ukraine, as well as our Canon X and The Russia File podcasts. Throughout the program, if you have questions for our guests, you can submit them via email to canon at wilsoncenter.org, to our Twitter account at Canon Institute, or on our Facebook page. Please include your name and affiliation when sending questions, and that way, um, there'll be a higher chance that we'll pick your questions uh, to ask of our guests. So without further ado, let us turn to our speakers. Our first guest today is Lenny Volkov. He is the head of the network of regional headquarters of Alexei Navalny. He's also the founder of the Internet Protection Society. He was campaign manager and chief of staff for Alexei Navalny's 2013 mayoral campaign for Moscow, as well as Alexei Navalny's attempt to register to run in the 2018 presidential election. Lenid was also the head of the electoral campaign headquarters of Alexei Navalny in the presidential election of 2018, and later the manager. Uh, he managed the headquarters of the all-Russian protest movement, Voters Strike. He's a former deputy of the Yekaterinburg City Duma and the head of the Central Election Committee of the Russian Opposition Coordination Council. His NGO, the Internet Protection Society, focuses on internet freedom and digital rights in Russia. Lenid, please, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Isabella, and thank you, everyone who is watching. Well, first of all, let us wish that the era of online conferences and some sometime finally, because it's so actually exhausting. It's, it's I would like so much to see real real people, but still, actually, we are discussing a very important thing. Uh, so Alexei Navalny was the leader of Russian opposition. He was poisoned uh, three weeks ago, and not on a leisure trip. It happened on a campaign trail when he was campaigning out in Siberian regions of Tomsk and Novosibirsk uh, to support the electoral strategy, which we call smart voting. So the tactical voting, uh, which uh, aims to <clears throat> outvote uh, the incumbent candidates from the United Russia, from Putin's party, and from regional and municipal councils all throughout Russia. The election day is now very close. It will be uh, the coming Sunday, uh, September 13th, and the smart voting supports 1,171 candidates all over the country. As, uh, for any major regional or municipal assembly. And uh, among those candidates are very different people belonging to different political parties. The only thing that they are those whom they believe could oust uh, United Russia people from their seats. Uh, we don't consider this to be a coincidence that the assassination of Alexei Navalny, the attempt to, to kill him, uh, happened when he was in Siberia on this campaign trail. It's quite obvious if we consider this and in, in the context of of the last couple of years of Russian politics. Uh, before 2017, the Kremlin's narrative about the opposition 
was that okay guys you may be you may have some fans among Moscow hipsters and like among three percent or two percent of the well-educated uh, middle-class uh, urban dwellers but of course the real mother Russia like outside uh, the Moscow peripheral road doesn't love you doesn't like you doesn't know you doesn't want to do anything with you uh, this narrative was of course false but the first real attempt to tackle it happened actually in 2017 when Alexei Navalny announced his future presidential bid and started to rally through the Russian regions, <clears throat> creating regional offices and conducting large rallies all over the country. We went to 62 cities throughout uh, during 2017, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and the largest rallies in terms of turnout, in terms of like percent of uh, population turning out to those cities happened in Murmansk and Smolensk. So two cities never visible on Russian political map. Two cities not very large and for sure belonging to the, in, in Kremlin's mind, belonging to the real strongholds of Putin's majority. After the presidential election where Alexei was never allowed to participate, we managed to maintain at least the core of this network of the regional offices that we've built 40 out of 80 in every major city, like literally from Kaliningrad to Vladivostok, in every major Russian city, there is now a local Navalny office which supports local activists, participates in local protests, runs anti-corruption investigations as a small branch of the anti-corruption foundation, participates in local elections, support local politicians, and so on. And we actually see that the role that Navalny offices in, in the regions uh, is crucial in every of the recent protest, protest movements. Uh, in in, in Bashkortostan, where they did a, a huge, they, they took a huge part of the job protecting Kostau uh, in uh, Arhangelsk and Shias, in Ekaterinburg, around the, the, the church thing in Khabarovsk, uh, with the recent protest, maybe not always they played the most important, the decisive role, but they always were very active, and they were very active as a, as a consolidation point. Like all regional activists know that if there is a reason for a new protest, if there is a reason for something political, then they can be sure in, their, in, in, in the capital of their region, there is a Navalny office where work brave people who are ready to get, um, ready to help with any local movement, with any uh, local issue that don't do, don't, don't play any undercover games with local politicians and so on, so on, so on. So this really helped a lot to amplify those local uh, protests, even though uh, when they were not initiated but by our local offices. Of course, this was very, very annoying. And of course, our local offices played a key role uh, in promoting the, the, the smart voting strategy, uh, the, the, the strategy to uh, uh, defeat United Russia candidates in the local elections. This strategy has been proven to be quite efficient in the last year, regional uh, elections of 2019, but this year's <coughs> regional elections uh, of 2020 
were even more important because they're the last midterms before the nationwide uh, election to the state Duma, which is gonna happen uh, in, during 2021. Uh, theoretically in September, rumors say that maybe in March or April, but any, anyway soon. And the upcoming election of September 13th is a dress rehearsal before the, <clears throat> uh, before the nationwide parliamentary election. Uh, so Navalny was campaigning to support the smart voting. Uh, he once again went to the regions. He didn't take large regional rallies uh, after 2018. So this was kind of a revival of the regional strategy and several other trips were planned. Uh, and of course, it made Kremlin very angry because after the last year's uh, success of, of the smart voting in many regions, not only in Moscow, in Irkutsk, in uh, Yoshkarola, in Penza and so on, Kremlin decided that it, it is fed up with Navalny's regional activities. It would really like that Navalny's activities be limited to Moscow only. They took some steps in terms of prosecution, trying to uh, like uh, pressing new charges against him so that he would not be able to, to, to leave Moscow. And also, of course, and the most important, uh, they took the decision to destroy our regional network. So the, the infamous uh, Anti-Corruption Foundation case was launched in August last year, a month before regional election, and the, the, uh, it included searches, arrests, uh, freezing of, of assets, and so on and so on, for all our regional stuff. Like 250 people uh, were searched, were interrogated, were seized of all their computer equipment, laptops, tablets, whatever, all their bank accounts was, uh, were frozen. Uh, and this was for every single campaign staffer of every our regional office. And this happened actually uh, just three days after the regional election. So the, uh, the election last year was September 9th and September 12th, they like really uh, organized a huge, probably the largest police operation in R Russian recent history, raiding all our 40 something regional offices and hundreds of apartments of our activists and employees and, and so on and so on. And they failed and they failed. So a year after our regional network is up and running, we didn't lose, well, maybe we closed a couple of regional offices ourselves, but we, we, we were not forced to do it. Uh, we are still operating efficiently, preparing the regional campaign. So, I think it was a very natural decision for them to take the next step. From the proceedings, from the paperwork uh, of the um, uh, Anti-Corruption Foundation case, we know that there is a cross-agency working group uh, within the Security Council of Russian Federation under Mr. Patrushev, which includes representatives from the Federal Security Service, from the Investigative Committee, from the Office of the Prosecutor General, Financial Monitoring, and so on and so on, which kind of coordinates the cross-agency efforts to 
uh, kill and destroy uh, our regional activities. And of course, all of our anti-corruption activities in Moscow. So this group planned and organized a huge year-long operation. This operation failed. It became very obvious to them this summer uh, that we are continuing our operations and actually are strong as never before. Uh, and they decided to take the next step. And of course, we all understand that this couldn't have been done without some form of approval from President Putin personally. Uh, thanks God, their next step also failed. And so now we are facing the regional elections uh, and the smart voting is actually facing quite a nice perspective. Uh, the, the outlook is very positive and very optimistic. Uh, to name a few numbers, uh, the number of uh, people now registered <coughs> uh, to participate in the smart voting in several regions, such as Tomsk and Novosibirsk, uh, where of course uh, the number of registration, especially uh, went up after Navalny was poisoned after his trip to those regions. Uh, so the number of registrations uh, in, in the smart voting system in those regions is now three to four times higher as it was in Moscow a year ago. And in Moscow, it was nearly enough to strip United Russia of the majority in the Moscow City Council. So, of course, we didn't know what's going to happen in just four days. Election is always very unpredictable, especially in Russia. But suddenly, <laughs> I want to, to finish with a very optimistic forecast for those regional elections. 12 minutes, as we agreed. Thank you very much, Leonid. So uh, we're going to go next to Ekaterina Schulman, and I'm going to ask her to reflect on how these developments impact on uh, Russia's, on the political culture, on the political climate in Russia, perhaps from a broader perspective as a, as a political scientist. Uh, let me introduce Ekaterina. She is an associate professor at the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences and associate fellow in the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House. She is also a senior lecturer at the School of Public Policy of the Russian Presidential Academy of National Economy and Public Administration. She's the author of several books. She has, she's a regular contributor to Vedomosti, The New Times, Republica, Colt.ru, Carnegie Ru, and others. Uh, thank you so much, Ekaterina, for being with us. And as a reminder, if you have questions for our guests, please submit them via email to canon at wilsoncenter.org, to our Twitter account at Canon Institute, or on our Facebook page. Please include your name and affiliation when sending your questions. Ekaterina, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, speak here and for this lengthy uh, and completely correct uh, introduction. Uh, I must only add that given the latest changes that happened in the Vedemist newspaper, I doubt that I will continue uh, a contributor to it, but all the rest was uh, absolutely uh, correct. Uh, in order to answer your question, I think that three aspects of this sad situation which we are discussing, although Leonid has done his best to make it appear not so sad, uh, 
which, which is a good thing. Uh, but I think that three aspects need to be uh, addressed. We need to understand who was and is Alexei Navalny for the Russian public sphere, for the Russian uh, public politics. Uh, what is the public reaction? Uh, towards these things which are happening and unraveling at the time we are speaking, and what the possible consequences in the short term and middle term to uh, the Russian political process, to the workings of our political uh, system. Uh, I must say that given the sociological data that we possess, uh, given the uh, results uh, of the numerous polls conducted by Russian sociological services, we must say that uh, Navalny is the oppositional politician number one, the best known to the wider uh, audiences in Russia. Uh, this wide knowledge, this huge uh, visibility has also its other side. His uh, anti-rating, the number of people who react negatively to him is also high, thanks maybe to the um, efforts of uh, the Russian state media. But still his name and face is known to the majority of Russians. Uh, during the latest poll conducted by Levada, Sociological Center, uh, asking the respondents, whom among the public figures do you admire? Who is an example to you? Uh, he was named second to the president in every demographic strata except 55 plus. So all the people of all ages, uh, except those over 55, name him either first or second to the president as a public figure known and positively known uh, to them. Uh, this is uh, quite an amazing, these are quite amazing figures given the stance uh, of Russian official media uh, towards him during the last 10 years or more uh, of his public uh, activity. Uh, by the way, paradoxically, uh, the latest attempt at poisoning suddenly made him a face and a name on Russian state TV, which for years has tried to avoid naming him directly. And uh, now we have uh, news, uh, in, in the news programs, we have like 30 minutes stretch devoted to him. Of course, he is named an oppositional blogger and all sorts of alternative facts uh, are being voiced, but still there's his large picture and there's a name. And so even those people who happen to uh, not to know him, uh, now they will be aware that there is uh, such a person. Uh, so at the same time, I have mentioned the, the high uh, anti-rating. And uh, given the lack of opportunity for him to personally run on any elections, during any elections since the mayoral elections in Moscow in uh, 2013, we cannot directly know, we have no data that will show us what will be the result of his participating in elections of any level. But, and here I am my second Leonid's opinion, he managed to uh, significantly influence the outcome of those elections in which he did not participate personally, nor was he able to register his direct supporters as candidates. The most recent example is the, uh, were uh, the uh, Moscow City Duma elections of last year of 2019, where none of the people directly supported by Navalny's organizations were registered as candidates. And still, uh, the results in influenced by smart, smart voting were such as, again, as, as Leonid mentioned, almost make, uh, made United Russia lose uh, the majority in the uh, city uh, parliament. 
So, given this position, this quite unique position uh, of uh, Alexei Navalny on the Russian political scene, the question often asked is why there were no protests following the assassination attempt. I've been asked this question several times. I must say that, of course, I do not have the exact answer to this. Protest activity is an unpredictable uh, material. It's always hard to say what exact event will drive people to the streets. There is often this logic that it must be the most hideous crime that produces the most evident reaction, but that is not so. Often it's little incidents that become this straw that breaks the camel uh, back, but uh, the crimes committed by the state pass relatively quietly. Uh, but I have another reason to uh, propose. I think that, again, hard, hard to predict as uh, a protest activity is, usually people tend to protest when there is a target, someone to address, and a clear demand to formulate. Uh, in these events with Alexei Navalny, they have been a constantly unraveling story. So the public, the general audience, is petrified into expecting what the next item of news will be. The story is not over, again, fortunately for all of us. Uh, and the news to be expected rather come from doctors than from politicians. So it is not clear what to write on your placard. What exactly? Please get well? Who is the addressee? of this possible protest activity. I would like to remind you that uh, when uh, Alexei was in the hospital in Omsk and uh, there was this struggle uh, about getting him out of the country and uh, flown to Berlin, people did go uh, to the uh, walls, to the doors of this hospital with the placards let him go. Because that was the situation where you have the clear demand and somebody to demand it from. This is what drives the protest energy, rather than a kind of thriller plot that we are seeing right now, where it is not quite clear, again, whom to address and what to demand. An evident uh, answer to this would be demand an investigation. But to address Russian authorities with the demand of an investigation can be a diplomatic step, but it can hardly be a viable, a, a rational demand on the part of the protest crowd. It will sound ridiculous in their own ears. So these are, I think, the reasons or some of the reasons that can be proposed to answer the question, why no protests now? Uh, the next uh, aspect to be addressed is what will be the consequences? Uh, we are currently discussing the elections that will take place in the next few days, which are actually already taking place within your rules allowing uh, a preliminary uh, voting. Uh, I think, uh, and here I'm sorry to give this sort of uh, expert commentary which says both yes and no, some of the voters, some of the people will be uh, so disgusted or so terrorized with what happened that they will feel despair and hopelessness which will demotivate them from any sort of political action including participating in elections. This kind of feeling that everything is useless, everything is hopeless, may be the effect on some of the people. But at the same time, another part of the voters, and we cannot quite say which will be the bigger part, will be 
motivated to vote by the sense of that their pent-up energies of anger, of dissent, of disgust, have no other way of expressing themselves than by voting. Voting is almost the only uh, political activity left in Russia that is still unpunished. Uh, even single pickets are already punishable because of the uh, anti-pandemic measures which prohibit uh, any sort of uh, mass events and even, uh, even although a single picket is not a mass event by definition, still uh, we, we see what happened in uh, Moscow this spring and summer when people tried to uh, get out and stand uh, with their placards. But you still Still can vote. And so the opposite type of reaction, like it's the only thing I can do, and if I can't do anything about it, let me just try this way, may be a motivation for a number of voters to uh, go and take part in the elections in, in their regions. Events will show which will be the bigger part, but I do think that during this election campaign in this year, we have a sense of rather high engagement, first on the part of the candidates. I think candidates are more active than voters uh, this year. Again, at least it's my, uh, it's my impression, but uh, the candidates and potential candidates are driven by the demand for uh, new for new faces on the political scene and more generally for another type of political communication, another type of political activity rather than the one presented by official figures and by officially allowed parties, the so-called systemic, uh, oppositional or not. And if there is this demand, then it will make itself felt in voters' behavior. It is interesting, I think, and counterintuitive sometimes that uh, during this election campaign, there is much less discussion on social media or elsewhere uh, on the usefulness of boycotting these elections. Although they will be conducted according to a new changed legislation, which is much worse than the previous set of rules that we had during last years. And still, uh, Again, there is almost no discussion of the type we were familiar with, that it's not real elections, the result is too predictable, it's no use to participate, so it's a good thing for a decent person to just stay away from these dirty games. This was one of the most popular types uh, of public discussion in Russia during like 20 years, I think. And now we are seeing for some reason less and less of it, although, let me repeat, the legislative frame is now worse uh, than it was during previous election campaign. I think this fact says something about the public mood uh, of the country. Although, of course, these are, I would say, collateral uh, evidence and uh, the, the results of, the, of, of elections of, the, of uh, uh, this uh, Sunday and a point that is often missed, the reaction to, to these results. Uh, will show us how people are really ready to behave. Because the customary sequence of events during authoritarian elections, and the most recent example is the one in Belarus, is elections during which oppositional figures are not registered, but some manage to get in the bulletin, they then protest voting ensues and then falsifications to smooth or eliminate the results of protest voting and then protests against the results of the elections, which the uh, people, the society is not ready to accept as real. 
in this respect, I'm looking particularly towards the northern territories, Arhangelsk uh, and the region uh, around Arhangelsk, where no oppositional candidates were allowed to participate in gubernatorial elections. And the state of public opinion that has been trained by more than a year of Shia's protest is very much oppositional. So I will look how there the electorate will react to the results that they will see next day after the elections. Katerina, thank you very much for this, um, for this excellent presentation. And last but not least, we have Sergei Parhominka, who is a senior advisor at the Canon Institute. He is also the host of Sud Sabiti, which is a, a radio show on Echo of Moscow. Sergei founded and was the first editor-in-chief of Itogi and of several publishing houses producing translated fiction and nonfiction literature. He was editor-in-chief of Vokruk Sveta, Around the World, Russia's oldest monthly magazine. He is one of the founders of Dissernet, Dissertation Web, a network community dedicated to exposure of dissertation plagiarism, and Pasledny Adres, The Last Address, a civil campaign dedicated to creating a collective memorial to the victims of political repression in the Soviet Union and Russia. He is also one of the founders of the Red Collegia program, an independent award supporting free professional journalism in Russia. And once again, I will remind you that if you have questions for our guests, please submit them via email to canon at wilsoncenter.org, to our Twitter account at Canon Institute, or on our Facebook page. Please include your name and affiliation when sending your questions. Sergey, please, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Isabella. Thank you so much, Canon Institute. To having me. So, uh, 20 days ago, 20 days have passed since Alexei Navalny was poisoned. And uh, half of this time, the most important question was what happened to Alexei Navalny. Now we have the answer. And now uh, we have a clear answer from Germany and there is no doubt that this information is serious and reliable information. So we have an, another question. And this question is, uh, uh, has a very serious political importance because the answer, the answer to this uh, question could help us to understand how the political situation in Russia will develop and uh, what will be political customs in Russia, political habits in Russia uh, how the development of relation between Russian authorities and Russian society in these new times after the poisoning of Alexei Navalny. The question is, why did they do it? The question is, uh, what was the, 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 the objective, the, 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 the goal of this, of this uh, action? Because it was a deliberate action. It was not, not by chance. It was even uh, not the executor success. Uh, all we, we, saw, all we, we, we have to, to, to understand after 20 years of uh, Putin's rule tells us that this kind of action, this kind of, of steps is possible only with the direct permission of Putin and under Putin's direct protection. Of course, Putin have many different performers, many different actors to choose from for this kind of actions. And Putin have different secret, secret services, 
like GRU or FSB. There are special military units uh, inside their army. There are Rosgvardia subordinate to Zolotov, his close friend. There are formerly non-state uh, military formation subordinate to, to uh, Prigozhin, his close friend. There are private army and secret repressive formation in Chechnya, subordinate to his protege Kadyrov. So, why choice? But uh, even if some of them are interested to be, to pretending to act on their own without a state control, we know that all this is Putin. All this is Putin's regime. All this is Putin's administration. So uh, what was the goal? And uh, what goals were pursuing? And uh, it is easiest thing to say that they uh, could no longer tolerate Navalny personally. Uh, and there are many reasons to believe that they uh, have been considering Navalny as their personal treat for a long time. It's because his anti-corruption investigation, it's because his participation of election campaigns, not his Navalny participation, but all this structure that was that was described by, by Lenin. It's because of his influence of the large mass of people in Russia who are critical to the authority via uh, his uh, online activity. And uh, the more popular Navalny's speech was on the internet, millions of viewers and listeners uh, or, or sometimes tens of millions of viewers, the greater the treat was considered uh, on Kremlin. But I think that's not the point. Uh, I think the purpose of this attempt to kill Navalny was to announce the new uh, the new rules in the game of Russian politics. Uh, now, after Putin opened our cards, after his cards, after Putin clearly stated that, that he wants to be in Russia forever, the, rule, the rules have to change. And uh, what they want to tell us in Russia, what that's want to, to, to tell the world around them, no way can do absolutely anything. No, the rule will be changed. No, we can ever kill. No, it's a new era. And the most important thing in, in that uh, way, so the Putin's power, we don't risk anything. You, the people who find this murder disgusting inside Russia, and you, the politicians who believe that governments 
can solve their internal problems. In this way, you can't oppose anything to us, the Putin's power. You don't have any tools and any instruments and any resources to punish us. That's the point of Putin in this situation. And I think it's very important for Putin that, that in the very beginning of this new era, on, era of his rule, this will be once and forever discussed and understood. Uh, neither inside Russia nor outside Russia uh, can do nothing after this action. In a certain sense, it's a very similar, in my vision, to the decision of Putin to annex the Crimea in early 2014. It was almost the same. Didn't Putin understand the political consequences of this unacceptable, of this uh, decision? I think yes. I think he understood them quite well. Maybe he missed some details, but in general, he understood, he, he, he was considerate to do it because it was important to him to, to, to do it at once with, with one movement, with one effort. And after this, he had his political catch. He has these political benefits in his hands and the consequences could be solved after and more after for many years, maybe one day. And, but the, the, the goal is already here. And let the storm pass over our head sooner than later. So I think the new situation will come today and the new rules of the game will come into force uh, today, immediately for all the Russia, for all kind of uh, Russian people who try to do something. Even not only the people who, who, who try to, to, un, to participate on the election on different uh, levels, but also the civic activists who try to defend human rights, to assure the liberty of speech, to rise some ecology movements, to start the local protests to defend the urban conditions of life, to defend labor rights, and so on and so on. It's a new rule for everybody in Russia because we can do everything without any reaction of wrong. It, it's a very important that uh, Katya said uh, some minutes ago. Uh, nothing to ask to this to this power. Nothing to 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 obtain from him. Uh, it's my personal question also. Why I can't go uh, on the street in Moscow to test uh, 
against what? Putin uh, stopped to kill Navalny. Putin gave to Navalny some medical help. Putin uh, stopped to use this kind of uh, of threats. It's uh, it's never worked. So I think that's the point. I think that's the that's the most important thing. And I think it's a not a not a not just by chance. It's not not just just the consequences coming because of development of situation. It was a deliberate decision to do it. Uh, and uh, we will try to continue in these new conditions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sergey. So I want to ask um, all of you, whoever wants to maybe take this question, what, uh, do you see any consequences for this coming from the West? Uh, I think we've already seen uh, people, I think, uh, in fact, Bill Browder talking about um, uh, sort of a Navalny Act in, in uh, uh, you know, something akin to the Magnitsky Act. Is there something that uh, the activists would want for the West to do? Um, what are maybe perhaps different constituencies within Russia that would want for the West to take actions uh, and what kind of actions? Who would like to take this question? Uh, I okay. suspect it's it's rather the question for Leonid. What kind of reaction would he like to see? Uh, because being a foreign uh, policy issue, that's that's not my cup of tea, uh, definitely. But not, Leonid, not, what, not, what not, would you want them to do? Not my Israel. So no, I I just don't understand anything about this. I concentrate on the upcoming election and on Russian internal policy, uh, politics. So would, would, you like, would you like Nord Stream 2 to be stopped or on the, on the opposite side to, to be built twice quicker than, than planned? Any ideas about that? I don't think it's, I don't think it's just relevant. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. You well, see, we have a... you see we, 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 don't, we don't can't any imagine something uh, to to be done. Uh, that's the point, because because we know very well these these uh, practices or this uh, maybe last five years or oh, six years just after after Crimea Crimea uh, annexation, and we see the reaction of European authorities and this uh, strange. Uh, but very logic works that uh, it's not a Europe, just like Belarusia. Belarusia is not a Europe. It's uh, somewhere on the border of Europe. Uh, it's somewhere on the Putin zone and somewhere on the, on the Russian, Russian universe. And if even Belarus is, is in the Russian universe outside Europe, Russia itself is 10 times more outside Europe. So we can't even ima imagine uh, some uh, some decisions or some measures to 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 punish them. 
to, to just uh, answer that. And it will be decided inside Russia and will be, it will be uh, developed inside Russia and only inside Russia, never any international force and international decision can't help us to resolve this situation. Thanks. Well, in fact, I'm going to pick up on what you said, Sergey. We have a question <clears throat> from uh, Zachary Paikin from Cooperative Security Initiative. He is asking, uh, to what extent does the poisoning of Navalny show that Russia is no longer interested in European norms? Is this evidence that Russia's civilizational pivot to Eurasia is now complete, or does Russia's future still lie in Europe? You're muted, Katrina. Yeah, hello. Uh, if I may, uh, no, it doesn't mean anything of this kind. Uh, it's a crime. It's evidently a political crime uh, in all possibility committed by state or state-related agents. It means no civilizational choice. It says nothing about Russian society. Uh, it says nothing about uh, Russian culture or civilization, civilization in any way. It is one in the chain, sadly, in the long chain of many such crimes uh, committed in recent years. And almost none of them were properly investigated. Uh, in this, I would disagree with what Sergei said, uh, that it uh, constitu constitutes some uh, sea change, uh, some uh, crossing of red line, and the entrance in new, in, into the uh, field of new rules in the completely new political universe. I see it the continuation of a sad tradition rather than something new and unexpected that was unthinkable uh, a year ago or two years ago, and now it suddenly happened. In 2015, we had uh, a killing, a shooting of an oppositional political figure in front of the Kremlin, behind the Kremlin walls, uh, the murder of Boris Nemtsov. It was a sad and tragic event. We do hope that this event we are discussing will not turn uh, into a tragedy. But again, before that, we had other politically motivated murders. Uh, I'm not trying to say that it's okay and that nothing out of the way happened. Uh, I'm just uh, trying to uh, draw now, a line here that will show that that shows that uh, it is not some some unprecedented crime. Again, it's unfortunate, uh, but uh, I think it's more useful to keep within the uh, uh, bounds of the uh, reality. Thank you, Katerina. So I want to remind our speakers, or our um, our uh, our audience, that if you would like to submit a question, you can do it via emailing. Uh, it to canon at wilsoncenter.org or to um, tweet into our Twitter account at Canon Institute or uh, by submitting it on our Facebook page. Please include your name and affiliation when you do that. We have a question from Dmitry Gorenberg from Harvard University and his question is, uh, two speakers have noted that Putin's permission was necessary for attacking Navalny or for any similar action. Yet there is some consensus that the assassination of Nemtsov was carried out without Putin's prior permission. Is it that the situation has changed in the intervening years or are these two different situations? Who would like to address Katerina? Well, well, I would say that the situation definitely changed. The, I mean, a, a five years have passed. The political situation is very different. And uh, 
So the Putin approval ratings of 2020 is absolutely not as it was in 2015. And the role, I mean, with all due respect, but the, the role Navalny plays in Russian political life now is also very different from the role that Nemtsov played in 2015. Uh, I think that one of the triggers might have been uh, the events in Belarus. Well, it's not my idea, many people argue that, but uh, let's, let's put it this way. 200,000 people marching in the streets of Minsk every Sunday, enormous amount, enormous turnout, like 10%. And pretty much every political theorist was pretending that 10% out in the streets of the capital is enough to, to induce the split of elites, the conflict of elites, and, and the change of power. Still, it still doesn't happen in Minsk. And as we could suppose, uh, or the only real, I mean, the, the only visible reason is uh, the lack of leadership uh, there on the street. Well, because the, the protest leaders were isolated very much in advance and new persons who arise as protest leader are getting isolated like, like Marie Kalisenko. So maybe it was one of the reasons to take this decision, like imagine uh, something happens in Russia similar to what happened in Belarus, and there is a strong leader and a large political organization, network of political organizations, ready to participate and ready to amplify those elections, or those, 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 those protests or something like this, like it happened in Khabarovsk. So, and maybe this was also like, they, they've seen it in Minsk and they decided to, to prevent this from happening. In 2015, this uh, Killing. The political situation was very stable for Putin. Nothing like this was on the board. That, that's the difference. Mm, I may only add that I think an enormous amount of time and intellectual resource has been spent uh, on this question whether the president personally gives orders or not, or whether he just blesses uh, what, what happens uh, post factum. I think that is not important. Uh, I think Sergei said it's all uh, the state system. It's all one political machine. We will never know. Uh, in all rational probability, uh, whether the order was personally given or not, oral or written, or was it just a phrase like, uh, it's time to uh, do something about this issue, or whether there is a certain circle of actors who have guarantees of uh, immunity so they can act when they think that this action will benefit uh, the stability of the political system. And so no, no orders are necessary. Uh, I do think we need to stop uh, wondering about this very minor question, because what is important is not the action itself, but the reaction to it. Maybe the president doesn't give orders of this kind, and I do suspect he does not. But if time after time, time and again, uh, there is no investigation of the crime, the perpetrators are not sought, and those suspected are protected. Uh, and if the suspected poisoner um, of Litvinenko uh, gets uh, a decoration and then becomes a member of the uh, country's parliament, then it does say something about the attitude towards such actions. And if you do not 
punish such an action and you being the state. It means you encourage them. And this is tantamount to giving an order or rather in this environment, any ordering is unnecessary. Somebody at some point, at some moment will take it into his hands to do what he thinks will benefit uh, the president. Thank you both very much. Uh, Sergei, did you want to say something? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Uh, I think we have some differences, very important differences, but in, on the reaction of uh, Kremlin and Putin itself and the other person uh, around Putin. In this situation, and the situation of uh, murder of uh, Boris Nemtsov, and the same murder of um, of uh, Politkovsky in 2006. In these two cases, Politkovsky and Nemtsov, state and Kremlin and Putin uh, uh, did everything was possible to explain that's not us. That's maybe some Chechen extremists, maybe another kind of extremist, maybe some crazy people, maybe, we don't know, but that's for sure not us. And uh, we don't uh, we even try to, to, uh, to, to find a killer and to organize uh, the, the investigation. And we see our investigator officers to, to do it and to do uh, all his efforts. It's not a situation with uh, uh, Navalny case, uh, with Litvinenko case, and another one with a Skripal case. It's absolutely another reaction. It's a, a reaction of no reaction at all. The, just one world uh, 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 said by, by, uh, by Putin, Navalny uh, uh, got ill, got sick. Navalny have his good medical treatment. That's all. And uh, the idea is not uh, uh, somebody tried to kill Navalny and we don't understand and we don't know who but it was even no crime, and it was even no problem. It, it's, a, it's an another thing, it's an another, another uh, reaction, and it, it's an, an, another line. And now all the officials uh, around Putin's try to, to, to explain it's the work for German people, for German uh, physicists, for German investigators, to prove to us what was happened in in Berlin, like 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 this event was in Berlin, the, the most important thing thing to Navalny uh, comes in Berlin, not in Omsk, not in Tomsk, not in Moscow, but it's in Berlin. Navalny have uh, had some problem with uh, with his, uh, his medical situation. That's the the idea, that's the, the, the theater made now by Russian authority. It's absolutely like the, the, the um, Skripal case and not the Boris Nimsov one.
Thank you, Sergey. And we have a couple of questions about Belarus, and I'm just going, you've already touched on some of them. I'm just going to roll a couple of them into one. Uh, and uh, so there is a question about, uh, somebody has observed that uh, at the same time, basically, as Navalny was poisoned, um, we see what's happening with the leaders of the protests in Belarus, that they're being arrested and, and expelled. And the question is, is it some kind of a coordinated action? Is there a link between what is what the, the Russian leadership is doing and what the Russian leadership is doing? Or are these completely separate approaches to, to the leaders of protests? Mm, these are the things that autocracies do, especially what they do when they start losing elections, when they start losing that uh, national popularity, that at least passive support, which is the basis of authoritarian legitimacy. They try to do away uh, with uh, any visible uh, political leaders that can present a danger to them. Uh, I must say that in case of Belarus, with all the uh, theatrical, I would say, theatrical inhumanity uh, manifested uh, by the authorities, they're still trying to steer clear of actual bodies. So there are no murders. They're expelling people, they're imprisoning people, they're trying to silence uh, po opposing political voices, but they're trying not to kill people, at least so far. Uh, in case of Russia, again, we do all hope that Alexei gets well, so this example also fits into this category. Uh, it has been more or less uh, the same type of policy. Uh, encouragement of immigration, uh, administrative code uh, being used uh, preferably uh, before the criminal code is employed. Uh, so fines and what is now called in popular Russian political parlance sutki, the days, uh, the days of uh, administrative uh, arrests and larger and larger sums of fines and other types of financial uh, repressive measures. Uh, these are the instruments used to discourage uh, political participation. In this uh, aspect, all uh, uh, modern autocracies, uh, the so-called competitive or electoral autocracies or informational dictatorships, uh, to use the term uh, invented by uh, Sergei Guriev and Daniel Trisman. Uh, that's, that's the thing they do. Thank you, Katerina. And anybody else would like to add to this? Uh, so I'm just, our time is actually coming to an end. So I want to wrap up with a question that a couple of people asked. What is actually um, Alexei's uh, state right now? What is his uh, what is his state of health, and is he in a position to return to Russia? Is he planning on it? Is it safe for him to do it? What what's uh, what's going on in that regard? Uh, as I have said on quite many occasions, we don't comment on his health condition. All information comes from from the charities. They publish uh, that they. Uh, agree upon with with the family, uh, so I only could repeat that this condition his condition is improving, but it's still too early to make uh, any forecast or assumption about long-lasting consequences. Still, we hope that the answer, even when uh, Alexei will will return to Russia, will be answered by Alexei himself soon. Okay. Uh, Lenny, thank you very much. I want to thank all of our speakers for this discussion. I want to thank our audience for submitting their questions. And we'll look forward to seeing you all next time at the next Canon Institute event.
Thank you. But le thank you very much. Uh, let me also express a hope that's been expressed by Leonid at the very beginning of our discussion for uh, uh, an offline event next time, because with all due respect to Zoom conferences, uh, we very much hope to be able to actually meet uh, real people in real audiences. Absolutely. So we, we all share this hope. Absolutely. <laughs> so maybe see you next time in real life.